You are listening to All Things Reconsidered, Episode 4. You can also view this episode on Peter Bogosian's YouTube channel. More information on the project is online at peterbogosian.com, substack.bogosian.com, and nationalprogressalliance.org. This episode of All Things Reconsidered is supported by The Scientific Method, encouraging you to objectively establish facts through testing and experimentation. Visit peterbogosian.com to learn more. I'm Peter Bogosian. Welcome to episode number four of All Things Reconsidered, where we consider what in the world happened to NPR. If you missed the first three episodes, you can find links in the description. Today, I'm together again with Matt Thornton, fifth degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and author of The Gift of Violence. For this episode, Matt and I will analyze two stories from NPR. One is an interview with Rachel Levine, U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health. The other is about former President Trump's executive order regarding diversity training. We also discussed the support NPR provided for listeners when Trump was interviewed for Morning Edition. Hint, NPR wasn't sure listeners could handle the stress. We'll also have another segment of Morning Sedition with former public media journalist Gina Gamboni. And we get things rolling with comments from former NPR listeners about why they stopped listening and supporting NPR. Today, we're going to hear from Joshua, Dan, and Frederick about why and when they stopped listening to NPR. Let's give it a a roll. Here is the first clip, Joshua. I grew up in what I would call a conservative home, though my parents never discussed politics. Um, On road trips, my parents liked to listen to NPR, Rush Limbaugh, Dave Ramsey, Car Talk, Uh, My dad loved car talk. But um, as I got to college, I also was listening to NPR. I really liked it. I liked the programming. Um, I liked the wit of it, the intellectual side. Um, I liked the pieces, the stories. My hope for NPR was always that it would be an unbiased, straightforward reporting or representation of the state of affairs in our country. I was an independent, moderate um, in college. I'm still registered independent, still can't vote in primaries. But, um, you know, by every political polling, I was very moderate on my views. I haven't taken it in a while. I don't know where I would land. But um, I remember I really fell out of love with NPR when I felt like things were so one-sided. I remember hearing story after story after story, and it always seemed to demonize the right. It was always, you know, the Republicans are always wrong, and the Democrats are always right. And I remember feeling frustration that there couldn't be some sort of balance in their reporting, and that we couldn't analyze both sides and see um, that, you know, uh, conservatives perspective is just as valid as a liberal's perspective. Um, That was really frustrating to me, but 
the day I turned off NPR, and this is back in probably 2010 to 2012 sometime, but the day I turned off NPR was when I really couldn't turn on the broadcast without hearing some piece about how racist America is. Everything was about race. Every time you turned the dial to NPR, it was a story about race and how, um, you know, if you're white, you're bad. And if you're a minority, you're marginalized and you feel like a victim in an oppressed society. So I, uh, you know, gradually was just like, if I heard a story like that, I would just change the channel. But it got to a point where that's all I was hearing from NPR. So that's the day that I decided to walk away as a listener. It's something we hear over and over again. Yep. And it matches my my reasons for turning off NPR until recently when I was forced to listen to it again was <laughs> hearing how crazy their reporting was on police shooting incidents that I was a, I knew the information, I knew the evidence for those situations and I saw how badly and how mis, how they were misinforming the public on that. And no matter what what time of day, I would turn it on in the morning when I was dropping off my son at school or in the evening, there would be some episode there on race. Right. And um, there's a lot of people who've, who've made that same comment. A lot of people do think that, you know, issues of racism are a serious issue in the country. But even people who believe that don't want to be hit in the head over and over and over and over again, 24-7 with... Yeah, uh, with that narrative. Yeah, which is what so they're doing. Here's what, some of the things he said that I thought were really interesting about the idea of demonizing. Mm-hmm. So instead of seeking to understand, which is the philosopher Jürgen Habermas saying, for communication, you want to seek to first. It's actually the seven habits of highly effective people. First, seek to to understand, then to be understood. Instead of seeking to understand why someone would vote for Trump, or what so abortion whatever whatever it is they the idea is that they're inherently bad it's just a de- demonization i love the the phrasing fell out of love he's looking for balance he knows there's no balance um he seemed to me like a very reasonable very intelligent down to earth kind of moderate and in, in that sense i would put him with the majority of americans you know, and um, he's just looking for real data from both sides. He wants to hear the the other the other side of the equation right. actually expressed honestly. He he wants to know. He wants to know. He what wants it is. to know. He right. He wants to understand. He realized that he can't get that from NPR, and that's the other reason why we need a source people can go to that's objective and independent. Now I'm going to tie this in. This is why they don't have experts on who actually believe it. They ask people on the left to characterize characterize people's views on the right, and they're or not even the right, just anything other than a woke belief. Mm-hmm. It pushes a narrative. All right, good. That that was Joshua. Let's take a listen to uh, Dan. Here's Dan. Hello. Hey, I stopped listening to NPR when I. I played a little game and I still do it sometimes. Um, it, try turning on NPR and see how long you can go before they frame the story in a racial or gender sense. Uh, in other words, they might have a, a, a story about the economy and then a separate little story about how black people are affected by the economy or something like that. So it always, always, always is through the lens of gender or race or some other thing like that. And, um, it's fun little game. You should should give it a shot. You can even do it now. 
Um, I would say nine times out of 10, at some point they will mention um, gender or race or some other left wing kind of thing. So I just don't think that's news anymore. I think uh, they used to be pretty interesting uh, and stimulating. I think um, after Garrison Keillor went away with Prairie Home Companion, uh, things fell off pretty heavily for me. And um, they just don't offer any news that I really need to know about at this point. So thanks. I would say they offer anti-news. It's a great game. It is a great game, and, and that's the game that I played, and, and you'll, you'll find out how <laughs> the answer to that question really quick. And, and like I said before, this is something we hear over and yep. over and over yep. again. And it's not just that they're, they're so hyper-focused on systemic racism. It's more than that. It's that the stories that you hear about that subject aren't data-driven. They're not right. presenting evidence or Correct. people from di two different sides and having a conversation. It's, it's an emotional appeal meant to push the narrative and further drive racial discontent in our nation. And I would encourage nation. people to play the game at home themselves. Absolutely. All right. By the way, it's funny to me that with all the problems in the world, that this problem is forwarded among every other problem. Well, again, it goes to, I think, this tiny subculture of basically privileged people who I think are involved in the production of this kind of material. Luxury beliefs. Luxury okay. beliefs. Let's hear from Frederick. I stopped listening to NPR after another report with an unassuming title, that time about pregnancy, but where, of course, it quickly drifted into an um, article that was describing another white privilege. It was the last straw for me. But I'd like to discuss a prior report that made me realize they were no longer in there to inform. It started by comparing men's, the men's and women's U.S. soccer teams, and they immediately brought up the race question. As they said, the women's team, with mostly white players, has been very successful over time. And the men's team, while not being as successful, is a melting pot with most minorities represented there. Ironically, they didn't even realize they were actually telling the audience that diversity doesn't always work great. Now, one could expect the logical follow-up question to be, why isn't the men's team as successful? But rather, the question that was asked was, why isn't the women's team more mixed? Again, putting the highlight on skin color. Even though the show was called The Latino Hour, I really didn't see that one coming, as personally, I care about what people bring to the table and not their skin color or sexual orientation, etc. First of all, it's pretty clear that for them the primary goal of anyone nowadays shouldn't be to find success. It should be to fit in the ideology. And even if that team, the US women's team, fits in the other portion of the ideology with their vocal LGBTQ plus players, they don't fit in all dimensions and therefore must go undergo scrutiny. The men's team, though, can miss the World Cup qualifications. They're still okay. It would have been nice to see if there was something they could learn from their female counterparts, but that wasn't part of the journalism uh, investigation. Of course, they didn't stop right there. They explained that the problem of having too many white players came from the fact that it is expensive to play soccer club in America and therefore that mostly privileged white people could afford it. 
obviously. They continued by describing how unfair it was and by advocating for cheaper cost for all. This was not journalism to me. It was a very awkward piece of propaganda, and I never listened to NPR the same way after that. And I completely quit it sometimes later. I really enjoyed that. That was very interesting. Yeah, you know, sports is one of the few places in the world where meritocracy still rules because, of, you know, it's about winning. And it's, it's not about trying to get a team of players who look a particular way. It's about trying to win the match. I mean, the, you could complain that the Asian-American population is vastly underrepresented in the NBA, except we know that it, we're not, it's not a... Uh, it's not a um, some kind of um, plan to keep Japanese Americans from playing basketball. It just right. so happens that that's how the sport works out. And the and the conclusion and NPR is always starting with a conclusion and working backwards. Correct. And and that doesn't get you to accurate answers. And so in this case, the answer they came up with was why to the soccer team, women's soccer team was mostly white, was socioeconomic and. And that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny either. I've been all over the world, and the poorest places you go in the world, you know the number one sport they all play? Mm. Soccer. Mm. You could go through a poor village in Africa. You could be in Eastern Europe. You can be in places where the economy is far, far worse than anything you'd find in the United States, and you will find little kids playing soccer. They'll make their own soccer ball. So I don't understand uh, why soccer would be cheaper than basketball. I don't know the reason for why the team looks that way, but but starting at the conclusion, working backwards and coming up with a really silly answer like that doesn't help anyone. And now we hear from award-winning journalist, producer, and former host at NPR affiliate stations, Gina Gamboni. NPR is not a radio station. It produces and distributes programming that your local public radio station purchases, but your public radio station is not NPR. Why that's important, today on Morning Sedition. <laughs> Most public radio stations started out with music programming, and the majority of the hosts on the stations were locals. NPR first started broadcasting its content in 1971, Public radio stations across the country first carried All Things Considered, and Morning Edition followed shortly after. The rest of the programming on local stations would be all sorts of music, often classical, opera, jazz, bluegrass, local performers, and interviews with local people. People who've been in public radio for a long time tell me that public radio stations started carrying more news programming from outside sources, including NPR, after 9-11. The public became more interested in receiving news after that attack. NPR started creating and distributing more content in the past 20 years, and more public radio stations were picking it up. NPR creates Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Weekend Edition, Here and Now, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Invisibilia, and the TED Radio Hour. It also produces podcasts that your local station might play, including Throughline, Up First, Planet Money, and Code Switch. Also, NPR distributes programs created at public radio stations or individuals through its network. These include 1A, Fresh Air, Latino USA, and StoryCorps. You might think all of your favorite programs you listen to on public radio come from NPR, but public radio stations also purchase programming from American Public Media, or APM, and Public Radio Exchange, or PRX. 
APM distributes BBC World Service and The Splendid Table, while PRX distributes Selected Shorts and This American Life. Among these three main distributors, NPR has the most influence over public radio stations. NPR has a tight financial relationship with public radio stations because when a station purchases Morning Edition and All Things Considered, they can get a host of other content from NPR in a package. Morning Edition and All Things Considered are really expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for midsize and larger stations, and millions of dollars a year for really large stations. A station won't have a lot of money for other programming after purchasing these or for other staff. So NPR makes it really easy for stations to fill up many hours with NPR products through package deals. NPR also has a training program for young journalists that go on to work in public media stations across the country, of course, spreading NPR's agenda and ideology far and wide. So newsrooms in public radio stations are very close with NPR news. Also, NPR is seen as helpful by management at many public radio stations. NPR provides guidelines about best practices, and it offers some training opportunities at radio conferences and online. Managers love this. It removes the onus of being involved in hard questions and creative possibilities. They just do what NPR does, and it means less local on-air staff to manage. NPR loves that people think NPR and public radio are the same thing. And there's the added benefits that everyone thinks all the programs are from NPR, which isn't true. And public radio stations have been proud to be NPR affiliates, so they generally don't mind that people think they are NPR. Regarding APM and PRX, they follow standards set by NPR because public radio stations do. And to sell your product to a public radio station, you will get in line with NPR standards. One big problem is that public radio stations have started broadcasting so much outside programming, including NPR programming, over the last couple of decades that the tone and the flavor of the content has become standardized, stagnant, ideologically uniform. You know exactly what the position is going to be on any topic, who's going to be interviewed, what elements of a nationwide poll will be highlighted, and what elements will be completely ignored. Total uniformity. When NPR makes a decision to use a term like pregnant people instead of pregnant women, that decision ripples out to public radio stations and public media content providers instantly. Everyone at stations across the country may not instantly make changes, but in my experience, eventually everyone will. And this effect occurs not merely with language, but with what stance to take about certain ideas and about certain people. A gentleman named Scott, who commented in a previous episode about why he stopped listening to NPR, he said, the well is poisoned. It's worse than that. NPR is not a well. It's more like a water system with pipelines reaching into every public media station across the country and into the cars and homes of every listener. And when that water is contaminated at the source, well, I don't mean to sound apocalyptic here. It's just a metaphor. But that's the situation with NPR and public radio that nobody will talk about or tell you. But it is essential to understand how the ideology spreads. 
I'll see you next time on Morning Sedition, where I'll talk about calls to defund NPR. Thank you, Gina, for joining us on All Things Reconsidered. And now it's time for Matt and I to reconsider the journalism NPR produces and how it affects listeners. NPR journalist Steve Inskeep was able to secure an interview with former President Donald Trump in January. We're not going to air the short interview, which is bizarre in and of itself. Instead, I want to talk about the letter that NPR sent to affiliate stations about the interview with Trump. NPR leadership was worried that the listeners would be traumatized upon hearing Trump's voice on the radio. So NPR sent advice to stations about how to handle potential outrage by listeners. The letter is called, quote, customizable listener letter for use by stations. Inskeep Trump interview 112 2022. Okay, here's what the letter says. The below communication may be helpful to your audience responses. As always, feel free to send audience members with questions and concerns about NPR directly to us or go to npr.org forward slash contact. Dear listener, as a national news organization, one of NPR's core duties is to report on and present points of view that impact political realities in the United States. Donald Trump is the former president and leader of the Republican Party. His statements and actions are influential. The NPR reporting you'll hear on WXXX, just insert whatever the affiliate station is, is extensive. And of course, some stories and voices will be controversial. Audience members can expect to encounter a broad variety of coverage across NPR's platform. And here's the the punchline. NPR remains dedicated to holding powerful people accountable by asking them direct questions with the goal of presenting them fairly <laughs> and in context with fact checking <laughs> with fact checking and analysis. NPR's coverage decisions are made by NPR's newsroom leaders in line with comprehensive ethics guidelines. More information can be found in the ethics handbook, blah, blah, blah. You can contact NPR's office of the public editor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the public editor's independent media, blah, blah, blah. Sincerely, XXX. Okay, so um, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? that? They're giving people basically, they're giving affiliate stations a kind of <laughs> roadmap for what happens when their listeners are traumatized by hearing the former president's voice. Yeah, I'm wondering is what that says about how NPR feels about its listeners, yeah. or is it more that they're afraid of the blowback from actually even reporting anything that the president says, and they're afraid what the listeners are going to say or complain about to the station? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it's I- interesting that you, you, you're giving people a warning. It's almost as if they're cultivating a sense of fragility. In or the, they assume it. Yeah, they, they they assume, and maybe they assume it for good reason, because the NPR listeners have become increasingly fragile, of which causally they played some role in the first place. I love this idea that NPR remains dedicated to holding powerful people accounting accountable by asking them direct questions. I, I, in no segment that I have heard 
And in no segment that we've done has that ever been the case. Yeah, we've been yet to experience that. I, I spent hundreds of hours listening to NPR, inflicting brain damage on myself for you, the listeners, and I've not heard that once. But, but listen to the rest of it. With the goal of presenting them fairly and in, the, in context with fact-checking and analysis. Yet to see any of that. I've yet to see any of that. In fact, not only is there no fact-checking analysis, there's not even an expert on the other side. That's one of the things I've, I've learned from listening to hundreds of hours of this, if not more at this point. And that is, instead of finding an expert to talk about something that runs counter to the narrative, they'll find people who already buy into it and ask them what the other side thinks, and a straw man is created, and then they'll savage that. But only always. But Correct. And so the addition of that was particularly crazy to me. It just makes me wonder about the mental state of people who, who write this stuff and who believe this stuff. I wonder if being sheltered from the opposing point of view for years and years could do that to you. Yeah, it creates an actual kind of fragility. So then when you hear, you don't even have to hear the argument. You just have to hear his voice. Right. You hear his voice and you're somehow traumatized as a consequence of that. But but the, I, mean, I mean, the whole thing is so deranged. I don't even know where to go with it at this point. That letter NPR felt obliged to write in order to justify having a former president on its airwaves has nothing to do with this next story we're about to do, and yet it does. NPR claims they hold powerful people accountable by asking direct questions and having fact-based conversations, and yet we know that's not true. Yeah, it's total, total, totally false. So let's take a look at a story. Before, before we start, I'm going to just give you some background to contextualize this. Uh, Levine is an American pediatrician and a four-star admiral in the United States Public Health Service Commission Corp. She's a U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health. So Levine was also named as one of USA Today's Women of the Year in 2022, which recognizes women who have made a significant impact. How long has she been a woman? Uh, well, 11 years. For 11, she transitioned in 2011. She also uses WPATH, World Professional Association for Trans Health, as a source for many, a lot of the information about transgender care. The organization has been criticized, and we can put links in the YouTube channel. Okay, let's take a listen. Admiral Rachel Levine, the highest-ranking transgender official in U.S. history, will give a speech in Texas tomorrow. Levine is the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health. She'll be speaking at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, where she will urge medical students to fight political attacks against trans young people and their families. NPR's Selena Simmons-Stefan got an exclusive look at the prepared remarks and sat down with Levine before she flew to Texas. All over the country, from Idaho to Arizona, lawmakers are introducing bills that target trans kids. Notice how this is framed as a political attack. It's explicitly a political attack. Target. Makes you think like somebody's being hunted. Right. They limit their access to health care or sports or what can be talked about at school. Limit their access to health care? No. They're talking about what we'll talk about, gender-affirming surgery, Sports, yeah, they're talking about one particular type of sports, people who are born male, at some stage of maybe transition or self-identification, choose to go into female sports. So already we're, we're looking at something that's just not, not accurate. This could all, of course, be 
solved if you had a voice on the other side. We'll see if they do. <laughs> I'm not a political person, right? I'm a physician, and my focus is on medicine and public health. In her office at the headquarters of the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., Admiral Rachel Levine talked about her decision to go to Texas and take a stand against what she calls disturbing and dangerous laws. In her prepared remarks, she notes the lawmakers who write these bills reference scientific studies and use medical terms to justify them. She writes, quote, the language of medicine and science is being used to drive people to suicide. The mantle of concern for children is being claimed to destroy children's lives. So I, I just want to say a big claim. Yeah, that's a big claim. Yeah, it, it's a big claim. And and we see this all the time now. Follow the science. What's the science? What's the evidence? But the fact is, not only are those bodies of literature, those journals corrupt, but they're primarily used for ideological purposes to do exactly what they said in the beginning for political attacks. Well, I think in her case, she might actually be referencing the actual medical studies of which there have been plenty that show that some of, some of what she's advocating for could be dangerous for young people. And she doesn't want that literature included or want that language included. But if you don't want the language of science and you don't want the language of medicine when we're talking about a basically a medical issue, right. what language would she like? We have to take a firmer stand on behalf of those who are being hurt. Trans youth need to be supported. They need to be affirmed. There we go again. They need to be affirmed. Yeah. Well, I don't know anybody that doesn't believe in supporting trans youth. Again, that's not the argument. The argument is how do we support trans youth? How, how is, what is the best way to help young people who are going through gender dysphoria? That's what the conversation's about. Yeah. Uh, and she's framing that conversation as anybody that doesn't agree with the particular stance that she has is attacking trans people uh, as if, it, as if they, they want to impose some kind of violence on them. Yeah, and those arguments are nu nuanced. For example, Helen Joyce is an author uh, who writes about that rather extensively. But nobody's uh, nobody's attacking. This isn't an attack on people who need help. No, conversations about whether or not we give kids who haven't even gone through puberty yet certain drugs that will affect them for the rest of their life. And that's a serious conversation to have. It's a medical conversation. It's going to involve data. It's going to involve evidence. It's going to involve studies. And if she doesn't want that brought in there, then what does that really say about her position? That's the kind of conversation we should right. be having. It, it, I'll tell you what it says about her position is that it lacks legitimacy and right. no one will trust it. That's what it says. That's part of the legitimacy crisis, the crisis of legitimation. We just don't trust authorities, whether it's on vaccinations, whether no matter what, what, what it is. And this is a contributory variable to this. It's an, one manifestation of the legitimacy crisis. They need to be empowered. Texas is a pointed setting for this speech. The state has investigated the parents of trans kids. Families have moved out of the state because they felt unsafe. And the state attorney... Unsafe. There's the word again. That's the lingo. General recently attacked Levine herself on Twitter. I take my feelings about that and I put it into my advocacy and our policy work. On the policy side... I'm not sure what her feelings have to do with anything, but okay. Levine lists actions the Biden administration is taking to support trans youth. And on the advocacy side... I just... I, okay. I just have this idea of supporting trans youth. That is just not what this is about. 
Well, what does it even mean? I mean, so far we've heard, I mean, half the clip is over, and I have no idea what, what the actual legislation yeah. is. What, what she, there's been yeah. no. What, what does that mean to support trans youth? Yeah. Is that, I think I told you when, when my, my son was uh, 16, he wanted his hair colored at mm -hmm. the, the barbershop down here in Portland, and he had to have a note from his parents. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'd like to know what, what, uh, what that means, and I'd specifically like to know what it entails in addition to knowing what it means. Levine wants to educate people about sex and gender. For some people, they fear what they don't understand. And for some people, I think that these issues of gender identity are beyond their experience. And so... That's all true. Everything she said was just true. A lot of people fear what they don't understand beyond people's experiences. No problem. I guess what's, what, what reasonable inference can a reasonable person make from that? They don't understand it, and so they fear it. According to a Pew survey True. last year, more than half of Americans think that whether someone is a man or a woman is fixed at birth. Most people also say they don't know anyone who's trans. Levine says she knows most... Boy, I know so many people who are trans. I actually rolled at the gym well, last time. Yeah. Someone was trans. Well, we I live know. in Portland, so that, that's yeah. part of it. Yeah. People's experience of gender is as a simple binary. It is actually much more complicated. You know, there is sex. You might think that that is simple, but it, it is not. And then there's gender. Gender is really that self-concept um, in terms of your gender that is also multidimensional. There is also sexual orientation and gender roles and more. It's all complicated, Levine explains. When it comes to the appropriate treatment for trans people... There is a standard of care, an evidence-based standard of care. Evidence-based. Interesting. The people who turn to subjective epistemology standpoint of epistemology are now suddenly concerned with evidence, but they're only concerned with evidence if it supports their narrative. For the evaluation and treatment of trans individuals. Um, that standard is set by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. That standard is up. Uh, so the example of postmodernism blurring the boundaries of critical theory and complicating it, we'll put a link in the uh, YouTube uh, description. Updated as more research comes in, she explains, the same way doctors update whether or not to prescribe an aspirin a day for older people or how best to manage someone's diabetes. Really? She's equated something which there's broad agreement for with something for which there's not broad agreement for. The, the WPATH, World Professional Association of Trans Health, has been criticized by a lot of people in the medical community, and you wouldn't know that from hearing her. And these kind of conversations and this kind of science, quote unquote, is far from settled. Right. And there's nations like Sweden and other nations in Scandinavia who have pulled back from giving some of these drugs to young kids because, number one, we're not 100 percent sure what the long term benefits or, or harm could be. Yeah. And um, yeah. It, it, sorry. So she yeah. just said that the standards come from WPATH. Right. She Part of the problem. There's no stigma around. Or there's no political, I don't know, uh, stigma around researching aspirin and heart attack, old people, young people. But there is a um, convergence of a dominant, of, of a suite of dominant orthodoxies, which prevent researching something which is not morally fashionable. Well, for sure, right. because then they're going to say you're attacking 
trans youth. Exactly. You're not, you're not you supporting hate tra- you're trans You're transphobe. Youth. You hate trans people. You're, you're, you're encouraging suicide. There's, gonna, there's all these heavy accusations she's throwing out there that really have nothing to do with the conversation that's actually occurring in a medical community. And I'd encourage people to, to do their own research and to take a look. And we'll have some links below that they can look at. But, right. you know, this is far from, from settled as far as what you should and shouldn't do with a 10 or 11-year-old who feels they have gender dysphoria. It's a and, serious conversation. It's a medical conversation. Yeah, and f- feelings don't have anything to do with it. It's what's the evidence? How is what's the methodology for the studies? Uh, okay, let's keep listening. But importantly, she says there is no scientific debate when it comes to the big picture. There is no argument, really, about the value and the importance of gender affirming care. There is no argument. So that's one hundred percent dishonest. What? There's no argument about it. There's no argument that everybody wants to help help kids or anybody else who feels they have gender dysphoria. Correct. There's no argument about that. How do you do it? That's what the argument's about. Do we give puberty-blocking drugs to young boys or young girls who feel that they have gender dysphoria before they go through puberty that's and have life-altering effects? There's no argument. That's, but that's the question. That's a big question that's being prevented from being had, partially because of people like Rachel Levine. And she's framing it as if that question doesn't even exist. So it's it's a it's yeah, a I show guess, game here. She's she's done a Martin Bailey where she switched yeah. she switched it up. I, I guess if you only hung out with people who believe exactly what you do and they in your little ideological pond, yeah, I guess there would be no disagreement. If the, if the only thing I ever heard about trans issues I heard from NPR, then I would agree with that statement. But if I was a doctor, I would know better. All right, let's keep going. Gender-affirming care is not harmful, it's life-saving, she explains, and it's based on decades of research. So there you go again. And so people often would say to me, maybe this is just my own shtick, but people say, well, why does it matter that we have ideological diversity in institution? Why why does it matter that, that we have different people with, you know, either different starting assumptions or they... Uh, have certain views that are, are heterodox. Well, one of the reasons that matters is because if there's a convergence of opinion in the scientific community, for example, on anthropogenic global warming, if there's a convergence of opinion of, of, of scientific consensus and those people come from, they have different political commitments or no political commitments, the research is likely to be taken uh more as a matter of fact and less as an ideological presentation of an idea if the people are all over the ideological spectrum. That's the idea of having Supreme Court justices with different views elected by different presidents. But that's simply not what we have now. I asked Levine if it's exhausting explaining her own experiences and answering questions about gender all the time. Okay exhausting explaining your own experience. Your experiences might be important for you, and I'm sure they are, but we're talking about science. We're talking about medicine. We're talking about policy positions based upon the best available evidence. Feelings are completely irrelevant. Now, that could be one question. You know, is she, I suppose if you were trans, it would be exhausting to talk about it all the time. I don't think that's an appropriate take question. The, take huh? the politics out of it for a second. What are we actually talking about? We're talking about giving medical drugs to children. That's really what the debate's about, right? And she said that there's no, that there's mountains. She presents it as if there's mountains of data that that's a good idea. In reality, it's the opposite. And there has been a study 
um, that was exposed as being quite shoddy. You can look that up. And and a lot of the medical community is coming around and believing that the harm outweighs the good when What's it comes the study? to the, you know we'll put it in the comments. Yeah, we'll have it in the comments there. Um, but I believe that's just one, and it's poorly done. And we can contrast that with a lot of other evidence that's come back so far. Yeah, and the, and and the, shown it's dangerous. Right, and, and and again, this is not about my opinion or your opinion. This is about not only the issue, but it's about NPR. I want to I want to bring you back. To what they said before remember that letter that letter that we just read in that letter npr officials write and i quote npr remains dedicated to holding powerful people accountable by asking them direct questions with the goal of presenting them fairly and in context with fact checking and analysis rachel levine is the u.s assistant secretary for health she's a powerful person there were no challenges from npr not Zero. Right. That is not what they're doing. It is dishonest. And what are the potential consequences if she's wrong? Right? I can't. I mean. So here in Portland, in Portland Public Schools now, you'll have a sizable percentage of young girls who will identify as trans now. And we know from the data that most of them will outgrow that. Some will be lesbians. A- some Abigail will be straight. Schreier's irreversible damage. It's there. It's also in the Depersos. Yeah, but if you if you start providing a medical treatment uh, that's irre- irreversible before some of those things happen, or you don't take into account that the child might also have uh, depression or a whole host of other factors besides gender dysphoria. Yeah. And that is a serious medical conversation and debate that's going on right now. I would tell you that the evidence is on the other side of this, that we should be a little more cautious when it comes to providing and, this and kind of treatment And it doesn't even matter, ultimately, well, ultimately it does, but it doesn't matter where the evidence, it's not your job. No. To, it's not my job. Why are we doing this? We're doing because this because NPR they haven't it. brought up the questions. Right. They haven't asked the hard questions. Right. So we're doing it. And anybody who listens to this, especially after that, you know, we ask hard questions, you know, we hold powerful people. No, you actually don't. You're telling people that, you're forwarding a narrative, you're doing a disservice. You are fundamentally dishonest. Right. You're lying to people. The way the story is being presented is fundamentally dishonest, yeah, no doubt about it. All right, let's hear the rest. It's fine. It, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I've been in these positions for seven, eight years now, and so it doesn't surprise me. She understands that as part of her role, to use her position and her visibility as an open and proud transgender woman, she says, to support vulnerable communities in all ways. Vulnerable communities. There it is again. That she can. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Yeah, so... I feel like we have to explain a little bit about what the actual debate and conversation is about because this is such a misleading and, and poor interview that, that people are going to be completely misled if they don't know. And I would offer this. Imagine you have a child and your child has some form of gender dysphoria or as they're, as they're getting older, they start to believe that maybe they were born in the wrong body or they're a, a girl who feels they're a boy or vice versa. Do we want that child to be given irreversible medical treatment, surgical and and hormonal and all kinds of other things that can can have effects for the rest of their life without even being consulted, because that's what's going on in some states um, where the parents aren't informed of that, or or to have it pushed on them without having someone also stop and say, well, there might be other issues, or maybe when in two or three or four right. years that they'll grow out of it because and, the data shows that they right. do. Right. And whose job is that? Is that your job? No. No. But 
it's I think it's most Americans, job. most Americans would 100% agree that that seems to be the sensible route to take. Right. That's not an extreme position. That's not a position that says you hate trans people. It's not a position that says you want you want trans kids to kill themselves. It's actually right. the opposite. And and I don't know if more trans kids kill themselves after transition or before transition, but I'd like to see some studies on that. And a lot of this data and a lot of this conversation is not happening because the stigma that's applied to it uh, and the, the accusations that if you even have the conversation, you must somehow be hate trans people right. that come from, where does that stigma come from? It comes from episodes like this on NPR. Exactly, 100%. So 100%. this, again, at the end of the day is in my opinion, dangerous misinformation. Yeah, and why has Sweden, for example, cha changed cha changed uh, its course with puberty blockers? Or Finland. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can talk about what the science is unequivocally, and, and, and I think that there is, uh, unlike the, the, the piece where there's no debate, everybody agrees, I think that's insane. I, I, don't mean, think, I don't think most parents, most American citizens even know what's going on. They don't even know about this debate because they're not allowed to hear it. Right. And if you if you get your news primarily from NPR, you're not going to know actually what's going on. You're going to be terribly misinformed about what's actually happening, and that's not good. Yeah, and it's it not has good a real consequence. It has real consequences for the lives of children. I think my fear, personally, having looked into this just a little bit, is that in ten or fifteen years, we're going to have a lot of unhappy young young people yeah. um, who've gone through changes that they might otherwise regret because this kind of thing was pushed way too fast and I, th I i think it's a serious conversation to have whether you agree with that position or not i think we should all we would all agree it's a conversation that should be had and rachel levine doesn't seem to want that conversation to be had and that's not good y yes and i'll add one more thing uh, npr has covered zero Goose egg, nothing, nothing. Stories about the growing community of detransitioners. And I don't want you to believe anything Matt says. I don't want you to believe anything I say. No, I would like you to Google that yourself and look, NPR stories, detransitioners, or, or what have you. So we have multiple issues here. Uh, NPR is not doing what it says of holding powerful people accountable. They're pushing narratives. Uh, they're doing people a disservice. Uh, you, you made a I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction. I don't know when this is going to come about, but I'm going to predict this ideology is so ghastly that the gaslighting at the end of the day will be epic because no one will want to admit that no, they advocate for the mutilation they, oh, of, that, of child's, yeah. of ch the genitals we of children. We weren't pushing that it's on people. It's so ghastly. There's no doubt about it. And again, nobody, virtually, shouldn't say nobody, virtually nobody cares if you want to transition and you're 18. If, no. if you're 18 and you want to transition... There's no, there, that's not what we're talking no, about. it's not what the conversation's about. That's right. So another example of NPR having failed its Look up listeners. the data. If you look up at the data on any given topic on your own, if you take an hour, two hours to actually study and look at some of these studies on, on this or pretty much any other episode that NPR airs, I have a feeling you'll stop listening to NPR. And we don't, just to be clear again of what we want. We want it to change. Yeah, we want it to change. We don't want NPR to be defunded. We want it to be a source that we can all count on, that we can all rely upon, that we can all go to. 
We want it to do what they actually say that they're going to do. Imagine a conversation. Imagine us listening to an episode from NPR where we had two medical doctors on. Yeah. One who was presenting the evidence and the data for why they think we need to go a little slower or you need to be careful about giving kids these drugs before they go through puberty and one who thought it was a good idea and we could hear that data and we could hear that evidence from medical prof- imagine that conversation that should be the conversation that's going on with taxpayer funded NPR right 100% right <laughs> This next segment is from Melissa Block. When Trump ordered an end to divisive diversity training, NPR jumped on the scene. This interview is from October 30th, 2020. Matt and I are going to listen to it and run through it. Three civil rights groups have filed a federal lawsuit challenging a recent Trump administration executive order. The order bans certain types of diversity training in the workplace, which the president has railed against, calling it anti-American propaganda. He brought this up at the first presidential debate. The tone. Notice the tone already. He's railed against it. They were teaching people that our country is a horrible place. It's a racist place. And they were teaching people to hate our country. So with the order, government agencies and contractors are scrambling to figure out how to comply. Here's NPR's Melissa Block. When Michelle Kim heard about the president's executive order titled Combating Race and Sex Stereotyping. My first immediate thought was, here we go. The voice. You notice the voice? It's the it's they, that it's like a cult voice. It's people who have been doctored into the ideology speak with the voice. The social workers who came down... At freaking out at me from the building had that exact voice. Kim is co-founder of the company Awaken, which provides workshops on diversity, equity, and inclusion to businesses. And it didn't take long before she heard from a client. I got an email. Let me pull it up. Um, and it said, we request you review your materials and talking points to ensure they do not imply any of the following concepts. Concepts, including the term white privilege, Let's see. Wouldn't it be nice if we had some kind of uh, uh, what is white privilege? What do you mean by white privilege? Let's let's actually disambiguate might be too big of a word, but let's actually try to take an honest, objective look at what this is and what the data is for this. Which the Trump administration has singled out as potentially problematic, along with systemic racism, unconscious bias. Okay, unconscious bias is something we can just simply... There's evidence against those instruments testing for this. The idea is that people are inherently biased against certain races. We give them a test. Uh, uh, There's evidence that we can get into later. Intersectionality and critical race theory. The executive order states they're all part of a, quote, destructive ideology that threatens to infect core institutions of our country. Somehow we've gotten to a place where we believe Fighting against racism is anti-patriotic. Whoa, 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 okay. whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I don't know anybody who holds that view. And I know a lot of conservative people, and I have a lot of friends and family who voted for Trump as well. I don't know anybody who believes that fighting against racism is unpatriotic. That's yeah, not the Anti-patriotic, argument. even worse than unpatriotic. That's not, that's not the argument. That's not the argument. 
And it's amazing, instead of criticizing what people actually believe, they make a straw man up mm-hmm. and then criticize that. Mm-hmm. F- think about that. Just let that percolate for a second. Fighting against racism is anti-patriarch. Literally, I wouldn't say nobody believes that. Maybe somebody some somebody in Arkansas. Tiny like, fringe. No, nobody I've ever met thought that. No. I've, I've never even heard that in public discourse. Mm-hmm. But let's see if she lets her get a, if she lets her get away with that or says like, well, really? Well, what do you mean? Like, give me an example of someone who says that. Can you think, can you please give us one thinker or one piece of writing where that is in the last 25 years? Uh, let's talk about that claim. That's where we are as a society, and that's a really scary place to be. Michelle Kim managed to assuage her clients' concerns. No pushback. But Joelle Emerson wasn't so lucky. Her company, Paradigm, lost a client, a government contractor that put all of its diversity training on hold. Under the executive order, contracts can be canceled and funding pulled if companies don't comply. Emerson says when that order first came out... I didn't believe that any of our clients would be phased by this. I was like, this is clearly propaganda. It's fascist propaganda. Fascist. It's a little hyperbolic, maybe. Fascist propaganda, not mere propaganda, but fascist propaganda. Huh. Really? Okay. It's a dog whistle to Trump's base and organizations that care about diversity, equity, and inclusion are going to be just as offended by this order as we are. Offended. Offended. That's the other currency. That's the other kind of cudgel. Oh, you're going to be offended. Well, in the words of Stephen Fry, so f- what? And I was wrong. The new policy has had widespread and immediate effects. Government agencies, including the Departments of State, Justice, and Veterans Affairs, have all suspended their diversity training programs to review their content. Universities that receive federal funding have done the same, out of fear they could jeopardize their government grants. It's been a rough few weeks. (laughs) There's not enough hours in the day. Chris Gokturk has been fielding a flood of calls from companies with government contracts. She's with the employment law firm Littler Mendelssohn, helping businesses with affirmative action and diversity programs, and they've had a lot of questions. The most common thing is, should we stop all of our diversity training? Should we just stop? And at first, I said, no. You vetted your training. You always review it and everything else. <laughs> okay, I love that idea. She's vetted it. Yeah, she's vetted it. You can always do it when you vet yourself. You're yeah, always going to come on. She's vetted it. She's, other, she's asked other people who participated in the ideology if this is a good idea. So far, the only people that have been interviewed on this episode are people who make a money teaching diversity, equity, right. and inclusion. So right. I would love to hear from an actual critic, but we'll see. I love the idea of, of, of vetting something you believe if by finding other... It would be like vetting Tai Chi by finding 10 Tai Chi masters or Wing Chun. Right. I, I, lo- I, love, the, I love just love this idea of vetting. Okay, let's... But even, even to explain why... What it means to vet something, you well, would have to construct an entire epistemology from somebody. Well, I think... What she could have meant when she said she was going to vet it is she could have vetted her program against what the actual executive order stated, which I think would be interesting to look at. But let's hear what what she says. And then the hotline went up. A government hotline, phone and email, where people are encouraged to send complaints about diversity training they find offensive for possible investigation. Uh, I wonder if that's what it what it actually was. Is it because they thought it was offensive? Is that why? 
Hmm. The hotline has received more than 140 responses in the five weeks it's been up. Not much. Stanford sociology professor Shelley Carell is appalled. This is asking Americans to be surveilling other Americans. And this is, you know, this is, it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling. Carell studies gender and organizational (laughs) diversity. Of course she studies gender and organizational diversity. Next thing you know, they're going to have a diversity, equity, and inclusion board, and they're going to be coming after people. (laughs) Next thing you know. She fears that chilling effect could extend beyond what's laid out in the executive order and threaten free speech in academia. Oh, no, it's going to threaten free speech in academia. I mean, when I think free speech in academia, I think far left for sure. I mean, just the nerve of that, like the very people who are orchestrating campaigns to silence people. The very people who have institutionalized bias response teams, the very people who have created offices in search of tasks to hound people who have weaponized these. Now they're concerned. They're all of a sudden magically concerned about about the chilling effect of free speech. The very people who are orchestrating the witch hunts. I mean, it's just it's it it's just it's utterly mind blowing. There is a lot of worry that this is just step one and that this is going to lead to restrictions in terms of what we teach um, in the classroom. The executive order (laughs) specifies that divisive concepts can be discussed in an academic setting if it's done objectively and without endorsement. Yeah, if that's true, you'd have to eliminate entire departments in the university. Anything with the name studies in it would have to go. They're all ideological. They're all forwarding narratives for forwarding a certain set of axiomatic principles you'd have to get rid of the whole thing the whole thing is divisive well you can't have objective learning at a university Pete. of course not that's why you have to make up your own epistemology when the facts don't accord to what you believe of course if joe biden were to take office in january he could undo the order with the stroke of a pen there you have it commercial for joe biden there you have it Right. That seemed even for NPR that that seemed a little bit, um, you know, it was basically advocating, look, here's a huge problem. How do we solve the problem? Joe Biden will solve the problem. His campaign declined to answer if Biden would rescind this order, but said he intends to tackle all forms of systemic racism. Systemic. There's the word systemic. So I was curious because I have no idea, based on that report, what Trump's executive order actually said or didn't say because we got no information based on that. We just got a basically a straw man argument. So I looked some of it up here. And um, here's the things that that the executive order is meant to stop. Divisive concepts means concept that one race or sex is inherently superior to another that the the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist, that an individual by virtue of her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Those are are the core tenets already of critical race theory. Those are the core tenets of of, of Kennedy's, those unpacking the invisible knapsack. That an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of his or her race or sex. That members of one race or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to race or sex. Yeah, that's the, th- those are violations of the concept of equity. That an individual's moral character is necessarily determined by his or her race or sex. 
that an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex bears responsibility Against for actions the legacy committed of Martin Luther King in the past members and that any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish or other form of psychological distress on account of his race or sex. So I could go, I could keep Robert going Applebaum. through this, but I think if you were to read each one of these off to the majority of Americans, I think the majority of Americans would agree with most of these points. We yeah. don't want to treat people differently. Well, I, I certainly don't want to treat people differently based on race, sex, yeah. or, or, or gender. And not only would the majority of Americans agree, if you, this is the Rawls thought experiment, if you didn't know your place in society, every single person who's not embodied in a position like they don't know their race, their social set, everybody would agree to that. I think so. I think this is something that the majority of Americans would agree to that. This reads like something Martin Luther King Jr. would have yep. was fighting for. And just because... And I would never know that from the NPR. Right. So. Just because somebody you don't like says something, it doesn't make it wrong. Right. Like, so just because Trump's team, I actually know someone who worked on that. Just because someone on Trump's team or Trump's team puts out something, it's not, the default should, position should not be, this is bad. Let's savage it. We need Joe Biden. We need X person to help us. The, the position should, if you want to have any intellectual integrity, it should be, what does this say? Can a rational person disagree with this? Is this rooted in evidence? How do we know this is true? How could this be false? Basic questions. You'd never know any of that. In fact, not only would you not know it, the narrative has been constructed so that sane positions are mischaracterized to look insane. Right. That was, a fa that was just a fascinating story. I'm not a Trump fan. I didn't vote for Trump. Not that it matters, but I would have never known that had I not taken the time to look that executive right. order up myself. And, and that's that, not your job, by the way. No, it should be it's, the journalist it, job. It's the journalist job to say, to ask those hard questions, but it has to be our it's job. It's not now. even hard question. The, the journal, the journalist job is to say, well, here's the executive order. What in this order do you find problematic? I got zero information from that NPR clip about what the executive order was actually about or right. what it said. And after reading it and hearing the clip, their characterization of it was almost backwards. Correct. Correct. Misinformation, you might say. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of All Things Reconsidered. We'll reconsider more next time, so subscribe on YouTube and Substack. You can find links in the description and at peterbogosian.com. At the website, you can also get a t-shirt, tote bag, or sticker that will surely be a conversation starter. This swag is being sold to you at cost. We don't make a profit on these products, but the world may profit when you start a conversation about what in the world happened to NPR. We'll see you next week. This episode of All Things Reconsidered is supported by The Scientific Method, encouraging you to objectively establish facts through testing and experimentation. Visit peterbogosian.com to learn more. You have been listening to All Things Reconsidered, Episode 4. You can also view this episode on Peter Bogosian's YouTube channel. More information on the project is online at peterbogosian.com, substack.bogosian.com, and nationalprogressalliance.org.